0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Real World Nursing Solutions for AML Care, Insights on the Effective and Safe Delivery of Innovative Therapeutics. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash GFT860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Real World Nursing Solutions for AML Care. I'm Laura Zatella, a nurse practitioner from the University of California, San Francisco. During this presentation, we'll focus on the important role of the nurse in caring for AML patients during the era of multiple newer treatment options. After a brief review of where we stand with many different available therapies, we'll use contrasting case scenarios to explore how treatment and safety management might change given changing circumstances. I will also share several resources that summarize important dosing information on targeted strategies in AML. You'll want to refer to these practice aids throughout, so please take a moment to download these tools before we get started. Let's begin. AML is a very rare hematologic disorder, and it's very challenging. There are 20,000 cases estimated in 2022, and unfortunately, the overall survival rate at five years remains around 30%. Fortunately, since 2017, there have been multiple novel therapies that have been approved to treat AML, and the future is rapidly changing. However, despite this progress, there's still unmet treatment needs because older patients who have AML tend to have a lower chance of achieving a complete remission with therapy and have a lower overall survival. And since AML is more likely to be diagnosed in older adults, we need to have better therapies to help treat this patient population. So what is the role of the nurse in the modern era of AML care? As healthcare professionals, we have a really important role in educating patients and explaining to patients the diversity of AML, what the prognosis is and what they can expect, providing education on the therapeutic options and ensuring effective delivery of care. So attention to accurate dosing, scheduling, follow-up, clinic visits. It's also really important that we're empowering patients with what to expect and what side effects that we anticipate. It's important for us to understand effective side effect management so that we can intervene promptly um, to help patients cope with the side effects that they might experience. And then also importantly we provide a lot of emotional and psychological support for patients across the treatment journey. So how do you explain prognosis to patients with various AML subtypes? In general, you can classify AML in two ways. One is the subtypes of AML that have a good response to chemotherapy. And then the second is the subtypes that unfortunately have a poor response to chemotherapy. And in AML, the majority of the subtypes have a poor response to chemotherapy. And these include AML with adverse cytogenetics, which are more common in patients who are older, AML with the FLT3 mutation, secondary AML that arises from other treatments or from a previous myeloid disorder, and older patients. A small subset of AMLs do have a good response to chemotherapy, and these include the core binding factor leukemias or aml that has the NPM1 or CEBPA mutation without a FLT3 mutation. The AML subtypes that have a good response to chemotherapy can be cured with chemo alone. The AML subtypes that have a poor response to chemotherapy generally require intensive chemotherapy followed by transplant if the patient is a candidate for intensive therapy. In addition to assessing prognostic features, when you meet a patient who has newly diagnosed leukemia for the first time, it's also important to assess their fitness or frailty. This is a very important consideration and informs what treatment options might be appropriate for them. Age is not the best indicator of fitness or frailty. It's important to take into account other things like performance status and comorbidities. So if you have a patient who is fit and is a candidate for intensive therapy, then the Standard of care backbone initial chemotherapy in most situations is the standard dose citerabine and donorubicin, otherwise known as 7 plus 3. If the patient's leukemia has favorable risk cytogenetics, the addition of gemtuzumab may be considered in addition to the standard 7 plus 3 backbone. If the leukemia has a FLT3 mutation, then mitostorin, a FLT3 inhibitor, might be added to the standard dose 7 plus 3 backbone. And if midostaurin is added, some of the things that you would look out for are QTC prolongation, rash, and liver toxicity. If it is a therapy-related AML or AML with myelodysplastic-related changes, then you might use a novel agent called CPX351, which is a liposomal encapsulation of cytarabine and donorubicin. And this has a very similar side effect profile to standard 7 plus 3, except for it has delayed count recovery. So we see prolonged cytopenias in this setting. Now for all of these patients, if they are candidates for intensive therapy, and if the leukemia is in complete remission after intensive therapy, there is a role for allogeneic transplant. An allogeneic transplant would be recommended for any patient who had intermediate or at poor risk cytogenetics and were candidates for transplant. For patients who are not candidates for transplant, there is a newer option for maintenance therapy. So for patients who have intermediate or adverse risk disease who have received prior intensive chemotherapy and the leukemia is now in remission but they, for some reason, either can't undergo allogeneic transplant because there isn't a donor or for whatever reason, we can use oral azacitidine. So this is another novel agent that helps decrease the chance of relapse in patients after they've received prior intensive chemotherapy. Some of the important nursing points to remember about oral azacitidine is that there is GI toxicity. So it's important to monitor for things like nausea and vomiting. For patients who have undergone transplant and the leukemia carried the FLT3 mutation, then maintenance is recommended with a FLT3 inhibitor. And an example of a FLT3 inhibitor that's used following transplant for maintenance is serafinib. And the things that you want to look for with serafinib are rash, liver toxicity, GI toxicity, like nausea. If neither of the above scenarios are applicable, then no maintenance therapy is recommended. So what about older patients who are not candidates for intensive therapy? We have a lot of novel agents that are available for patients who are not candidates for intensive therapy. So the backbone in this situation is really venetoclax and azacitidine. And that can be used for AML without actionable mutations, It can be used in situations where there's AML with an IDH1 or an IDH2 or a FLT3 mutation. However, if there's an IDH1 or an IDH2 mutation, there are other options. There are now IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors that are approved. And so another commonly used regimen is ibocitinib and azacitidine if a patient has an IDH1 mutation. And if a patient has a FLT3 mutation, then it is also becoming more common to add a FLT3 inhibitor to the backbone of venetoclax and azacitidine. So what happens at relapse? What is the nurse's role in preparing patients for next steps? Because unfortunately, many patients will experience a relapse of their disease. So it's really important to get Genomic profiling at the time of relapse to see if there are any additional actionable mutations that can inform our treatment options. So let's use a case example to explore a nurse's role in AML care. We're going to start with Susan, who's a 74 year old patient who has de novo AML. She has a history of poorly controlled hypertension and diabetes. Her performance status is two. The baseline AML testing shows that the bone marrow has 75% leukemic blasts and there are normal cytogenetics. So assuming a venetoclax-based platform is recommended, let's talk about the role of the nurse in ensuring effective dosing and the safety considerations. There are a lot of important educational points for patients initiating venetoclax. Some of the most important side effects are cytopenias, so neutropenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia, the risk of infection, the possibility of diarrhea, fatigue, drug interactions, compliance, and the risk of tumor lysis syndrome. One of the most important things to do with venetoclax in order to prevent tumor lysis syndrome is not only to use appropriate prophylaxis with allopurinol and hydration, but also there's a un- unique venetoclax ramp-up dose schedule. So it's important to educate patients that on day one, they should take 100 milligrams of venetoclax. On day two, they take 200 milligrams. On day three, they take 400 and onward. And in many patients, they're going to be prescribed an azole like posaconazole or voriconazole as an antifungal prophylaxis. And so it's really important to know that there is an interaction between venetoclax and azoles. And so the dose of venetoclax needs to be decreased if a patient is treated concurrently with posaconazole or voriconazole. So we provided this material as a practice aid, which you can download and refer to for more information on venetoclax dosing, as well as the dosing recommendations for all the other targeted therapies approved for use in AML. So practical advice on venetoclax and hypomethylating agents, either azacitidine or decitabine. We usually start both therapies together on day one. It's really important to educate the patient about the ramp up dosing of the venetoclax and also to monitor closely with labs, hydration, and allopurinol to prevent tumor lysis syndrome. Patients may require antimicrobial prophylaxis, and this is really based on the institutional standards. As patients are treated with this, they often experience cytopenias. And that is uh, very common, especially within the first cycle. So it's important to support them with transfusions for red blood cells, for anemia, platelets, for thrombocytopenia. Most patients will also experience neutropenia. But during this very first cycle of induction, we do not hold or change the dosing strategy based on neutropenia. We tolerate the neutropenia until they're in remission. And after they're in remission, then we can institute dose reductions or dose delays in the venetoclax for neutropenia. But we really want to give them full dose venetoclax and azacitidine during induction therapy. So we'll check on day 28, a bone marrow biopsy for response assessment. And if the leukemia is in remission, then we can delay the next cycle for a week or two in order to allow their counts to recover and if the leukemia is in remission we can also use growth factors to help treat the neutropenia so what if susan had presented with an idh1 mutation how would her care change her baseline characteristics are the same and in this situation venetoclax could be considered here as well so then similar strategies could be used because aml with an idh mutation can be treated with venetoclax and azacitidine as in the previous case but let's assume that the clinician opted to treat with ivosidenib and azacitidine. So what are the practical considerations to think about with IDH inhibitors like ivosidenib? Some of the things we should think about is it can cause diarrhea, fatigue, and fevers. It's also important to remember that the way that IDH inhibitors work is by causing differentiation of these immature cells. So it can take three to four cycles to respond, and that's an important teaching point for patients. With ibocidinib and azacitidine, again, we see cytopenias, uh, particularly in the first cycle, and we need to support patients with transfusion support, and we do not use growth factors until the leukemia is in remission. It's really important to monitor azoles and the sip drug-to-drug interactions and then a really unique side effect that is important for us to keep in mind and for patients to be aware of is called differentiation syndrome. Since the mechanism of action of IDH1 inhibitors is to cause differentiation, you can get a differentiation syndrome that is particularly seen within the first two cycles. And the signs are unexplained fever, weight gain, respiratory symptoms, pleural effusions, hypotension, or renal failure. So if Any of these symptoms are noted in patients. It's important to have differentiation syndrome on your differential. And the treatment includes dexamethasone, 10 milligrams twice daily. And this is really effective to treat differentiation syndrome. It is very rare that hospitalization would be indicated, and it's very rare to have a serious differentiation syndrome. The other thing to keep in mind is appropriate dosing. So the dosing for ibacetone is 500 milligrams orally, once daily, with or without food, and this continues until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. And patients should be educated to avoid high-fat meals. So treatment for AML can cause a variety of side effects, particularly cytopenias and infections. And we can empower patients by educating them on what to expect and providing advice and support to cope with any side effects that they experience. Management of side effects leads to better outcomes and an overall better patient experience. That concludes our brief look at the state of AML therapy and the central role the nurse plays in modern patient management. Thank you for joining me. I hope you found this program informative and useful for your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GFT860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from ABVI.